The term passionate is a word thrown around and overused. Mountain life has become a hashtag for wannabe influencers. These words can overshadow and diminish the incredible people who actually live, work and play in the mountains. They have remarkable stories to tell and I'm on a mission to find them. I'm Ashley Pettit and this is the Beyond the Mountains podcast. My guest today is Dr. Heidi Silvestra and she's just an awesome human. Plus she's a glaciologist and is on the front line of climate change. So we had a lot to talk about during this episode. But before I hit the intro music, I want to say a few things. After I finished recording the interview with Heidi, we were chatting, I was packing up my, my equipment, and she said something that stuck with me. And then when I returned home and was reflecting on this interview, looking forward to sharing it, something else sparked a thought. So please indulge me for a minute before we get to the interview. Firstly, we need to change, and change is going to be hard. Changing long-held practices and behaviours is going to be hard, really hard. And it means we need to make sacrifices, but it needs to be sucked up and we need to get on with it. We need to get uncomfortable, be inconvenienced and hear the uncomfortable truth. Because doing nothing is going to be so much worse. I'm sure most of you listening will agree and believe that we need to change. But that belief for change needs to turn into action. We need to take one step in the direction of hope and then take another step in the direction of action and then another intentional step towards action again and keep keep taking steps towards action and then we can make change. And I think maybe we need to stop fighting for climate change because in reality it's already here and we need to start fighting for climate action. When we fight for something, it's easier than fighting against something. We need to fight for our future. Secondly, listen to Heidi and listen to the scientist. In researching this interview, I saw speeches, read articles, heard from scientists as far back as the 70s, 80s, 90s and 2000s, all warning us against the changes to our planet. Global summits, global agreements, documentaries have all predicted today's current climate crisis. I'll say that she's like the voice of the voiceless, the glaciers, but she's also the voice for the scientists before her and the scientists that stand with her today. So listen, really listen, there's no agenda here. And also imagine that you were talking to someone and they weren't listening to you. Imagine you were making an important presentation, talking to a loved one, talking to a doctor or a good friend. How would that make you feel if that person you were talking to wasn't listening to you. Especially when your intentions and your message were genuine and true. Also imagine if your life's work was slowly disappearing. Something you'd made sacrifices for was vanishing and there was nothing you could do because no one was listening. So please listen to this episode. Heidi's passion is infectious and inspiring. All right, that's enough from me. Let's get on with the show. Let's listen to the expert. So here's my intro. My guest today is Dr. Heidi Silvestra. She's a glaciologist and explorer and a voice for the voiceless. She's on the front line of climate change. She's a passionate advocate for climate action and for making the science more understandable so that we can make informed decisions about our future. She studied and explored the glaciers of the Alps, the Arctic, Greenland and Antarctica 
and she's one of the guardians for the last tropical glaciers of South America. She's like a real-life Indiana Jones. Rather than exploring and searching for hidden treasures of the past, she's exploring the frozen icy landscapes of our world and is desperately trying to protect the planet's natural treasures for our future. So let's hit the intro music, get on with the show, Alonzi. Hello, my name is Heidi Sylvestre. I'm a glaciologist, a science communicator, but to be fair, I'm very much a mountain lover and glacier lover. And I try to fight as hard as I can to make sure that future generations will be able to enjoy glaciers in the world. So this is my mountain life. Heidi Sylvestre, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Are you ready? I am. Allons-y. Allons-y. <laughs> All right. Um, so this morning you have went and uh, you did an exam. You're like a doctor of ice and you went to, what was the name of the glacier you went to? Argentière. Argentière. So being an ice doctor, did you perform any, any examinations and what can you tell me about the health of this glacier? You know, this is a glacier I used to see when I was a child, when I was coming to Chamonix. You would see it down from the valley, this huge cliff of ice hanging from the upper part of the mountains. And when I saw it today... It was just heartbreaking to see the difference, to see how much the glacier had receded. It's still magnificent. Yeah. It's still incredibly beautiful, especially with the early morning light. But you could tell how much the glacier was suffering. So I didn't do any measurements. I was just there to to explore with the, the local glaciologist, yeah. Luc Moreau. But I could really tell that, I mean, it's obvious that something is very wrong at the moment. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to dis- discuss this more, but I brought this uh, climate first aid kit. <laughs> I don't think this little first aid kit's going to uh, help anymore, is it? We need more action, I think. Yeah, I. Uh, this is a good idea, but um, at the moment we know that band-aids are not no, enough. No, the band-aid solutions are not going to work. We think we need some real climate action. So Yeah, and here, you know, in the valley, they, they install white tops, geotextiles on the glaciers uh, that work very well and prevents a lot of the melting from happening during the summer, but it creates other issues and it's not going to fix the climate crisis. Yeah, we're going to dive into that climate crisis a bit later on. So I want to go back to um, sort of take some data points on your life and take an expedition of, of how you live, work and play uh, and I want to start up with where you live. So obviously, I know you live in uh, Ansi or from Ansi, close to here, but you also spend a lot of time in Slavad, in Longyearbyen. Yes, so, that's right. Uh, tell me about Ansi. Yeah, you know, I was born in Ansi at the old hospital that doesn't exist anymore. And I grew up uh, in a small village nearby called Grufi, um, about 1,500 inhabitants. And my house was just at the bottom of the mountain, Le Semnos. And I honestly spent my entire childhood just exploring the forest around the house. I wanted to see the wildlife, see some animals, and, and I was you know, going all the way to the top of the mountain. And from there, you could actually see the Mont Blanc area. So you could see the glaciers from afar, but it was really a a childhood of, you know, just exploration of being absolutely mesmerized uh, by the nature and just falling in love with nature. 
Um, when you're at home in ANSI, sort of tell me about ANSI and the and the village. I've been to ANSI and it's a pretty special place, surrounded by mountains and the the old town. So give me. Uh, a local's point of view of what ANSI is. Oh, sure. Yeah, today it's nice because I've, I've actually come back to ANSI. And um, and I think, you know, the fact that I left ANSI for about 10 or 15 years to study abroad and work abroad, when I came back to ANSI, I realized that this place was just incredible. You have the lake that goes to like, I don't know, 25 degrees during the summer. You have the mountains. You can go skiing in all the ski resorts around Annecy. You have the old town of Annecy. People call it like the Venice of the yeah, Alps, know. you know, you have all the, <laughs> all the canals and it's, it's absolutely stunning. It's, it's really a, a place of, of incredible nature. The nature is at your doorstep very much so, um, but also the town is really beautiful and, and all my friends are still there. Yeah, so I'm, still I'm there. really happy to, to come back to Annecy. Do you have any favorite uh, places for coffee or favorite places to favorite boulangerie? You know, I think my favorite boulangerie is the one next to me, which is Le Puy Savoyard, next to my apartment, but it's very close to the lake. So I just grab something to eat for lunch and I just sit down on the benches around yeah. the lake. And when I'm in Nancy, that's what I do. And then I go and paddle on the lake during the summer months. And it's it can be very touristy. I think it's yeah. important to mention it. It's very it's a very busy place during the summer. Um, but just get a kayak, get a paddle and escape the crowds or go high up in the mountains and and there you will find your your peace you for sure. Your own space. <laughs> All right, and your second home, Slavard and Longyearbyen. Yeah, Longyearbyen. Yeah, in Svalbard. It's it's um, this is also yeah where I spend the other half of the year. Pretty much, it's it's also a very unique place. It's kind of the I was about to say the polar opposite yeah, exactly. of Antarctica. There's so many cliches. It is, <laughs> it is in the Arctic, so it's uh, this archipelago that is between northern Norway and the North Pole. And in Svalbard, you have one main town called Longyearbyen, and it's the northernmost town in the world. It's at 78 degrees north, and it's also a village kind of yeah. lost in the Arctic, and and it really feels like family, you know, every time I go back there. Um, I did a big part of my studies there. I still do some teaching at the university. And and also you're surrounded by glaciers. So even though you yeah. can't swim in the glacial Arctic Ocean uh, during the just, winter or summer, you can, but it's pretty painful. At least there I have glaciers that are two kilometers away from the town. So it's very easy for me to do my work. And lots of polar bears. And lots of polar bears. So you're right. So there are actually more bears than inhabitants. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to see a polar bear every day. So people who are listening, I'm just warning you, it's a bit of a miracle to see a polar bear. Um, but we always have to keep in mind that we are in their living room. You know, yeah. we are in their territory. So we are the ones disturbing them. And, and polar bears are totally protected, but you still have to have a weapon with you when you leave the town, just in case something happens. Yeah, I've seen the photographs of you with your rifle in the back. <laughs> yeah, I'm just pretending, but it's something I'm extremely uncomfortable I, about. Yeah, and uh, it's very, very tricky. You never want to have to use your gun. Yeah. Usually if you use it, it's because you have made a mistake or it is because you have stumbled upon a bear that was 
absolutely desperate um, to eat. Yeah. And it happens. It happens every year. Um, and there's a big police investigation if there is an encounter, a bad encounter between humans and bears. Yeah. But, but anyways, I think it's a place where almost like in ANSI, it's a lot less crowded in Svalbard, but the nature is incredibly powerful. And that's, that's what I miss when I'm not there, is just to feel really tiny yeah. because nature then can level everything and can flatten the town very quickly. It is, it is magnificent and really scary sometimes. But Longyearburn is also, a, it is a town and tourists can go visit it and there are infrastructures there. So tell me about Longyearburn as, as a town, as someone who lives there as a resident. Yeah, sure. You know, it is a town and there's everything you need. So there is a supermarket there, there's a hospital, there's a 3D cinema, wow. which is crazy. There's a university. Yeah, the university, um, of course. Lots of hotels. I mean, lots, maybe five or six hotels, five or six restaurants, bars. And so this year, if I remember the numbers correctly, but there will be 80,000 tourists coming to Svalbard. 80,000. Wow. So this is quite large numbers. And most of them come during the summer months on cruise ships. You, you can also go skiing during the spring, uh, go on on snowmobiles, snowmobile tours. Um, it's become incredibly touristy now, um, but the town is really reflecting about the kind of tourism that we can have up there, that the nature can yeah, afford. More sustainable tourism. Exactly. Yeah. And the problem is that in order to go to Svalbard, 99.9% .9 of the people fly there. Um, if you have a boat, I guess you can, you can come by boat, but... Um, is, can, can tourism in Svalbard ever be sustainable? It's a big question, but it can at least be a lot better than it yeah. is today. And hopefully it's making people aware of climate and the need for protecting our glaciers. You know, that's always the thing. And it, it's, it's a very fine line. It's very difficult, but... Today we are in Chamonix. Uh, we have the Mer de Glace, the largest French glacier just behind us, yeah. uh, just behind the mountains. It is, I think it gets more than a million uh, visitors every year. Um, and they're rebuilding the, the uh, tourist uh, infrastructures around the glacier to bring more people, to make the glacier even more accessible. And some people might say, wait, but this is going to bring even more pollution to the place. But the glacier has also become the biggest symbol of climate exactly, change, yeah. probably in the world. So this is at least here, you know, if only we could improve uh, mobility, if we could improve the transportation to come here to reduce that part of the carbon yeah. footprint. But let's totally use this glacier to educate people on the climate crisis. Yeah, yeah it's a great opportunity. I was having dinner last the night by myself and I came across two, two guests, two um, tourists from the UK, and they said they went to Glastomere de Glass and they were like, yeah, but we saw the, the panels and the markings and the you can see how far it's retreated over the years. It's incredible. It's like, you know, if one person makes that, that leap and sees that, well, then hopefully more people can uh, make that leap and see those changes. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I was there two months ago with kids from Western France and they were so shocked, so shocked by what they saw. They saw at Mer de Glace, you know the. I think you have to go down. What is it? Five hundred steps to reach the glacier now, because it is thinning so much. Yeah. Um, but fantastic! This is what we need. We need people to see climate change in the flesh, to really understand how quickly things are happening. Yeah, there's a lot to do. Um, the next sort of chapter and the next sort of data point I want to take is your, your work and what you do for work. And before we start that, I have uh, some text. 
So this is uh, a journalist asking uh, a famous climate uh, and environmentalist. So I'm hoping you can read the question and then read his response. And I want you to see if you can tell me who it is. Mm, okay, so it's a he. Yeah, it's a he. <laughs> so first question, I guess, yeah. from the journalist. Uh, you describe yourself as a witness to change. When did you start to? When were you in fact aware that the earth was changing? The yes. answers from the, the scientist. Well, when I started, it was for us, our friends, it was the pleasure for discovery. I saw that my job was to show what was in the sea, the beauty of it, so that people would get to know and love the sea. And then I got to see that the things that we had admired begin to decay. So we have to do something. We have to enter the fight because you only protect what you love. Oh, this is so true. Do you know, do you think you know who that is? No, but you said it's a he. Is it yeah. Cousteau? Yes. Oh, it is Cousteau. Yeah. Because first I thought, oh, this could totally be Sylvia. It could um, be yeah. And, uh, but, but so it's Cousteau. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So how inspiring. When I. When I was uh, thinking to come and interview, it's like, I have to do some research. And I'm reading these things from the these famous people and politicians and scientists talking from the 70s and 80s and 90s, making us aware of this these climate issues. And we're running so fast to this, these tipping points and these 1.5 sure. and this 2030 but we've been warned for so many years now. Yeah, that's wild. It's really wild to know that yeah, in the 70s, in the 80s, we could have done it. We had all the information we needed already at the time. Yeah. We knew that things were changing. We knew that the more fossil fuels we burned, the more the climate was going to change. And the scientists had been saying that for a long time. But the problem is what happened in parallel to that was a absolutely massive um, campaign of misinformation from the oil and gas industry. Yeah. This is not something to take lightly. And we are today suffering from the impacts, from the consequences of this campaign. It worked very well. Yeah. They were incredibly efficient. The same playbook that the cigarette companies uh, were doing, the, these oil and gas companies are still doing. And that's it. And I totally recommend the documentary and the book, uh, Merchants of Doubt. Yeah. Uh, what they did is simply to spread doubt in people's minds, in the minds of governments, of companies. So we could simply be blinded by what was happening and continue using fossil fuels. And today, as you said, you know, uh, 50 years later, we are really, you know, nose against the wall. I mean, the tipping points are right there. And um, and it's it's going to be very hard to yeah. avoid crossing these tipping points. Yeah. And, you know, I, I used Jacques Cousteau as an example, but he went to some world, one of the world, first world conferences, I think 1990 or 91, and all the governments and the world leaders agreed to protect the Antarctica for 50 years. And they've done it. Now we need to do it again. We need to do it again. I mean, we did, we did that for the ozone layer as well, the Montreal Protocol. Yeah. I think it was in the 70s as well, or was it in the 90s? But all the countries got together, got together to fight something that they couldn't see. I mean, they couldn't see the consequence of the ozone hole. So they followed the advice of scientists. Yeah. And all the countries got together, signed these documents, and implemented really ambitious strategies. And today, it is 
undisputable that climate change is caused by the burning of fossil fuels. I mean, I, do we need another research paper? No. On I'm not sure. What we need is really action now. But it's hard, and uh, and that's why we need you know more scientists to make the science even more accessible, and that's what we need: concrete actions. Yeah. ASAP. All yeah. right, we're going to talk about making science more accessible and, and making it more easy to understand and climate action. Let's bring it back to um, you as a glaciologist. How did you become a glaciologist and end up taking expeditions, traveling the world, going to Greenland, uh, the was the tropical glaciers? Oh, yeah, we're going yeah. to talk about the tropical <laughs> Greenland. And, exactly. Uh, so you've had a pretty incre incredible career. Take yeah, Take me back. I've been so lucky. You know, I when I was a teenager, I just wanted to find a job that would let me uh, be in the mountains. That That's all I cared about. Yeah. And when I was 16 or 17, I met uh, a Swiss mountain guide who was about to retire. And he told me that some people were being paid to study glaciers. <laughs> These people are called glaciologists. And I thought, wow, that sounds really like the coolest job in the world, literally. And um, and so since then, you know, I, I took studies to become a glaciologist. And, uh, and I've been incredibly lucky to try to to really become a field scientist. Yeah, why field scientist? Tell me that. Yeah, you know, you can totally be a glaciologist today behind a computer. Yeah, you sit at the desk. Yeah, you sit at your desk, you model glaciers, you look at, you know, big computer models, projections for the future. You, you, we have a lot of data, you know, to, to be able to do that. You can look at satellite images every day. It's not a problem. But I really, really wanted to spend time outside. And therefore... I was very lucky when I was starting in my studies to have this label on me as the girl from the Alps. Because I studied in the UK, then I studied back in Svalbard. And they thought, wow, she must be really tough. You know, she comes from the Alps. And I was I was not a good mountaineer. <laughs> I was not a good climber. I'm still, I'm not a good climber. I'm a good mountaineer um, I, or a good skier. But I thought that, you know, let's use this label as a chance to join as many expeditions yeah, as I can. it's a good way to get in. Exactly. And so that's how I got the chance very early on to join expeditions Yeah, in Greenland, in the Himalayas, expeditions in Antarctica, doing a lot of trips on Svalbard, of course, and to really see the expression of climate change in the flesh. And, and being a glaciologist today is very much about um, monitoring how glaciers react to climate change and and how the retreat or the disappearance of the glaciers is impacting yeah. populations around the world. So you can monitor the size and the and the weight of the glaciers, but you can also what do you do when you take the core and you, the, all the different levels, like the the rings of a tree, when you take the cores from the the glaciers? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the most poetic things that we do in glaciology is to collect ice cores, and ice cores are a fantastic way to reconstruct past climate. Um, so basically, when you um, take um, bits of ice from a glacier, um, the ice can be quite old. Here in the Chamonix area, the ice is at least hundreds of years old. I had friends in Antarctica a few months ago that were looking for ice cores that are up to a million or 1.5 million years old. Wow. 
And it's crazy because what you can see is a, a lot of layers. And a year is a layer, basically, yeah. of, of snow falling on the glacier, becoming denser, more compacted and, and transforming into ice. And so you can actually count like the rings of a tree. You can count the age of the ice. When it starts to be too dense, you can actually x-ray uh, the ice cores. This is what we do. Um, and what we want to do when we analyze the ice cores is to look at two different things. First, we look at the ice itself and there are, it's a bit technical, but oxygen isotopes, yeah. different ratios that will tell us about the temperatures. Imagine the temperatures over hundreds of thousands of years. And, and then you hit the climate skeptics cannot say that the temperatures have been cyclical. You've got data and proof there now. Exactly. And, and what's even greater about this is that not only you can look at the ice, but you can look at the air bubbles trapped in the ice. And the air bubbles are basically tiny, tiny samples of atmosphere from the time when the snow was falling on the glacier. And there you can actually measure CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, etc., etc. And so you have an idea of how climate has changed in the past. And actually the one who discovered this is French. Sadly, he passed away a few months ago. But Claude Laurius, he's the one who understood by drinking whiskey with um, bits of ice from Antarctica in his glass, yeah. he understood that we could analyze the little air bubbles that were popping from his ice cube. He understood that we could reconstruct past climate. And we understood two main things. First, that climate has always been changing. This is true. Uh, we had times that were as warm as today, times that were colder than today. But it really helped us to understand that what is happening right now is not natural at all. No. It's directly connected to human activities. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you something. I think knowing who you are a little bit now, I think you're going to be able to tell me this, but we have five senses. We can see, smell, and taste, and hear. Tell me what a glacier is when you see it. Can you smell it? Because glaciers, you can talk. You talk to glaciers, you can hear them. Oh, for sure. Have you tasted a glacier? Yeah, I always right. eat ice and give, stalactites. <laughs> give, give, tell me the five senses of, of, a, of a glacier. You know, yeah, first of all, of course, uh, when you look at a glacier, there's something incredible happening. They're giants. I mean, they can be very, very impressive. And one thing that really attracts me, and not just me, but a lot of people, is the, the blue of the ice. This is something so unique to have all these different shades of blue. Yeah, I and just see them as white, but you see them as mid different. Yeah, exactly. So when when the the sun is really bright, like you know, on a day like today in Chamonix, it's incredibly sunny and they look very very white. Um, but actually, when the light is shining the right way, the ice is very blue. When you go into the ice cave yeah. uh, in Mer de Glace, it's totally blue and it's mesmerizing. Um, and then, of course, I always want to get close to the glacier. Um, sometimes it's not very safe, but as a glaciologist, you have to. And so it's very important. I'm always like touching it. <laughs> and it's fine when it's not too cold like here in the Alps, but in the Arctic, when it's like minus 25, minus 30, you can really get your hand stuck in there. So it's not very nice, but there's something really, you know, it's so soft, the ice from the glaciers. It's, it's incredibly... It's not like rock hard. 
It is rock hard, yeah. but when you touch it, it and you don't expect it to be actually really smooth, yeah. and your your hand is like you know gliding, sliding against Even it. Even the heat, the warmth of your hand is changing the. That's it. You're you're like it. basically sliding over a thin layer of water yeah. between your hand and, and the ice, and that's always magnificent. Something I love to do, and and then there's also an experiment that I always try to do when I bring people into glaciers. You cannot do this everywhere. But in Svalbard, we do this a lot, which is going into natural ice caves, turning off the lights. Yeah. And that's, that can be very scary. Some people are not comfortable with it. It took me a while to be comfortable, but trying to listen to the glacier. And um, glaciers are alive. You know, glaciers are always moving. Some are very slow, some are very fast. But this spring when I was in Svalbard exploring these ice caves, we always turned off the lights for 10 or 20 minutes. And you can slightly, uh, slowly start to hear those little, you know, you hear the ice cracking, the ice moving. And sometimes it can be very noisy. I went to see a glacier that was moving at 5 to 10 meters per day. And that was scary. That was an acute sound that was really like a bulldozer moving over the land. And then, of course, one thing that is always cool to do is to eat the ice a little bit. I don't recommend doing it on Mer de Glace because there's too many people. No yellow ice. (laughs) No yellow ice, of course. Um, But imagine you have the chance to kind of taste uh, water, taste snow, taste ice from hundreds of years ago. So that's always something fun to do. Does it taste any different? You know, actually... A friend of mine used to have a company uh, making bottled water from uh, icebergs, so from blocks of ice that have detached from glaciers. And apparently it's some of the best water in the world because it has very few minerals, so I heard. Um, And so apparently it's uh, amazing (laughs) when you taste it. So, yeah, what do I know? (laughs) Well, speaking of water and what it tastes like... uh, I went for a walk down to the the Ark, which is the river that runs through my valley. And this river, obviously, since I've been researching the glaciers in your view in my podcast, it's from glacial melt, it's from snow melt, and it all flows into this river. I have it here. Oh, wow. So why is this water important? Not just to France, to me, but I've got friends in Australia. And, you know, why is glacial water important? Yeah, I love that you actually brought a jar <laughs> yes. of water. I was trying to be scientific. This is so nice. And I can see a few particles in it. This is typical, typical of, of uh, glacial meltwater. But, you know, you know, this is the key. This is the key. This is why we should care so much about mountain glaciers. Is because um, typically during the summer months, they melt. And this is a huge service that we get for free. From nature, from these ecosystems, every summer, we expect to get fresh water from the melting of snow and ice. And so these glaciers, these snow fields, snow patches, have become the water towers of the world. Um, I think the the number is that there are between 2 and 2.5 billion people on Earth who depend, depend upon water from glaciers and the water so it's it is fresh water it's just snow that has been that has accumulated over a long period of time but it's water that is being used for drinking for sanitation um for the production of electricity think about 
here in the Valley of Chamonix, all over Switzerland as well, yeah. the number of dams that we have. Yeah. Uh, we use the meltwater from the glaciers to produce energy. We use the water from the glaciers to cool down nuclear power plants during the summer months. We irrigate crops with the water from the glaciers uh, because this is a critical time of the year. And if you don't have mountains with ice and snow that can melt, and if it doesn't rain, where can you find the water? Maybe... You can have groundwater, but we're in a massive drought at the moment all over Europe. And we're happy to have these glaciers naturally melting during the summer months. So this is, I think, for me, the biggest argument why these glaciers are important, no matter where you live. And here it's really obvious in Chamonix because glaciers are just hundreds of meters yeah. away. But the water goes into these rivers uh, that cover you know the entire the entirety of the eu for example so you feel the impact of these glaciers over hundreds of thousands of kilometers away from where they are yeah and glaciers obviously are affecting europe but what happens with the glaciers of slavard and the ice plates of greenland and the antarctic was there obviously some of the those places are experiencing higher rates of climate change Exactly. And that's very true that, unfortunately, um, snow and ice regions warm up faster than the rest of the world. So it's already the case here in the Alps, to a lesser extent. The Alps are warming um, two times faster. I mean, this place is warming two times faster than the rest of France, for example. But when you look at the polar regions, the Arctic in the north, Antarctica in the south, things are happening extremely rapidly. So where I live on Svalbard, uh, things are warming six to seven times faster than the world. I mean, it's insane. Um, when you look at the Arctic as a whole, it's four times faster than the rest of the world. And there, there the consequences are not exactly the same. So yes, of course, when the ice is melting in Svalbard and Greenland, we're also losing water resources. But there, the consequences are more on sea level rise. Yeah. When you look at Greenland, for example, it holds today enough ice to increase sea levels by six to seven meters. So it's it's crazy the amount of ice there is in Greenland. When you look at the south in Antarctica, it holds enough ice to increase sea levels by 58 meters. So these are, I mean, we're really struggling to understand the volumes of ice that we have in the polar regions. And today, both Greenland and Antarctica are reacting super quickly to climate change. Um, both ice sheets are losing more and more ice every year. And Did I read somewhere that September, like there's the green, the ice sheets are going to disappear at one point. The, the latest data is showing some of these ice sheets of Greenland are going to disappear. I mean, it is possible. We're definitely not on the right trajectory to preserve it at the moment. And we know that both for Greenland and Antarctica, there are tipping points that are coming very soon. Yeah, I want to talk about some tipping yeah, points. Yeah, and if we cross them, yes, of course, then we might be on that on a trajectory to actually lose the ice sheets. Yeah. So um, at the moment, Greenland, I mean, I'll give you some numbers, but it's always meaningless because it's such giant numbers. But Greenland is losing, I think it's 270 billion tons of ice into the ocean every year. And Antarctica is about half of that. But Antarctica holds a lot more ice. Yeah. And so even if we lose a fraction of Greenland or a fraction of Antarctica, it's the entire planet that will be concerned by this, yeah. that will be affected because people will have to move. Yeah. Um, 
let's just jump into the tipping points because there are some numbers I've read about. Obviously, 1.5 degrees was a number or a target the governments have set. 2030 has been a target we just have to set. 2050 has been a target. So tell me what these targets are and what these agreements are and, and what they mean and how quickly we are running towards these targets. Yeah, exactly. This is such a good question because it's super confusing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we, we have to be very honest about this. Well, back in 2015 in France, we had COP21. COP, you know, it's the big climate conference that we have every year. And we were very lucky to have it in France in 2015. At the time, I was in Antarctica and I was really trying to follow what was happening in my own country because I knew the future of humanity was being decided there. And what the politicians of the time decided, they agreed on ambitious temperature targets. They said, and they all signed a document, the Paris Agreement, yeah. to say that we will try everything we can to make sure that the warming that is currently taking place stays below two degrees. So just in brackets, today we have increased global temperatures by 1.1 degrees Celsius since the pre-industrial times, so just before the Industrial Revolution. So we are at 1.1 and the Paris Agreement said, okay, we will not go beyond two, but if we can, we will try to limit this to 1.5, okay? Yeah. This was a non-binding agreement, you know, how it works to make sure that 200 countries agree. Right. It's very difficult. So the way it happened is that they signed a document, but there wouldn't be any, any real well, financial, economical consequences yeah. to this. So how do we get there? How do we make sure that we don't go to 2 degrees, that we don't go beyond 1.5 degrees? It's very hard. We need a strategy. We need a plan. And the plan is that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions ASAP. So that's why we're setting targets for 2030, for example, for 2050. And just to give you these, why these dates matter, well, basically, we need to be carbon neutral by the middle of the century. So that means that uh, we need to reduce our emissions as much as possible. And if we want to be carbon neutral by 2050, we need to halve our emissions by 2030. Okay. So that's how it works. So imagine 2030 is tomorrow. Yeah. And we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions globally in at least in half in the next seven years, six and a half years now, um, if we want to be on the right trajectory to be carbon neutral by 2050. And this will put us on the right path to stay below two degrees or below, if we can, 1.5. And are we heading in that direction? Are we making enough changes? Yeah, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, so right now, I mean, this is pretty heartbreaking if we follow the strategies that the countries have announced that they would that they will follow that they will implement we will go to 3 degrees by the end of the century 3 plus 3 degrees um so, and that's only if the countries follow their own climate targets right so it's one thing to say what you might do, it's another thing to actually do it. And so right now we're starting to see countries that are 
missing the climate targets pretty much every year. Um, I must say that the EU has incredibly ambitious climate targets. And the French government has been, you know, has yeah. already to pay hundreds of millions of euros in fine because we're not respecting uh, the EU climate targets at the moment. Um, so the consequences are becoming quite expensive if you don't follow them. And why this is important, the two degrees, the 1.5 degrees, just to come back to that. Yeah. These numbers were not drawn out of a hat. These numbers actually are incredibly important in the climate crisis. It's very important for what you mentioned, tipping points. We know that if we go beyond 1.5 degrees, we will lose big pillars of our climate. For example, the sea ice in the Arctic, for example, permafrost, the frozen soil, that when it thaws, releases greenhouse gases, we will lose uh, parts of the Greenland ice sheet part of the Antarctic ice sheet. These tipping points are important because when you go beyond a, a certain temperature, so the temperature of the tipping point, then you cannot stop. No, it's, you know, it's, the, it's irreversible. It's we can't irreversible. Stop. But the tipping points is not just climate. From what I've researched, it's species loss. That we're going to have increased fires and drought. The polar and southern vortexes are all changing and influencing this climate and drought means there's water resources, food resources, which can lead to mass migrations and wars, fighting over water resources. So there's massive amounts of implications of us not making these changes. That's right. I mean, just to give you an example of what was just released, a new, a new, research, um, a new research paper was published last week on Arctic sea ice. So I was telling you that most of the pillars of our climate have tipping points around 1.5 degrees. Well, for some other ecosystems, it's already too late. So sea ice in the Arctic is basically, you know, this crust of ice that forms over the glacial Arctic Ocean. Sea ice is white, so it reflects solar radiation very well. It's like um, a white top over the ocean, but it's natural. And Sea ice basically um, stabilizes the global climate. It's very important. It's connected to everything. Yeah. Sadly, uh, there was this paper released last week that said that the tipping point for sea ice will be reached no matter what. So even if today, which is incredibly sad, but even if today we manage to stay below 1.5 degrees, that is it. It's already too late to save the sea ice in the Arctic during the summer, summer months. months. Right. And this is important during the summer months because it is daylight 24 hours a day in the Arctic during the summer. Um, this is when sea ice holds its role, you know, of reflecting solar radiation. It's basically the AC of our planet, Arctic sea ice. With the loss of Arctic sea ice during the summer months, the consequences further south are going to be disastrous. So it's, for example, more extreme weather events. Um, it could be more droughts, more heat waves, more uh, cold waves, yeah. more humidity, more dry weather. It, I mean, it, it could go into any direction. Of course, it's getting a lot warmer than it is getting colder. Um, but this is going to have consequences on our agriculture, consequences on species, consequences directly on the populations, on the price of food, the price of electricity. So this is why this you know, story of the two degrees or the 1.5 degrees really matter. This is why we're talking about the need to have 
carbon emissions by 2030 and becoming carbon neutral by 2050. It is because it matters. Yeah. And behind every single one of these tipping points is humanity. I mean, it's 8 billion people who really still depend upon the nature. We, we cannot do we cannot do it without it. We, we need the sea ice in the Arctic. We need the Amazon forest. We need the oceans. And they have physical tipping points that are non-negotiable today, as opposed to what politicians do day in, day out. You cannot negotiate with these physical realities. Climate has no border. Climate has no... Uh, it's everywhere. I cannot say the climate in Australia is dif different from the climate of the everywhere is affected. So it's all connected. Yeah, it's all Absolutely. Connected. I'm going to introduce a, an idea I have with you um, that leads into this. But you, as a scientist and a very spoke, outspoken advocate for climate change, you put climate first. That's where you rank it. I wanted to challenge you about making climate third, not just as a ranking, but as a philosophy that the climate should be in everything we do, because you've been on exhibitions you've, where you have to have safety, but mm. you don't put safety first. Safety is just in your, in your presence. It's what you do. It's what you think about. It's an individual choice. You've been climbing with Alex Arnold, the mm. free soloist. Yeah. If he put safety first, he wouldn't climb the free solo. So, Climate, when we make climate first, it makes it someone else's problem. We start to put regulations and procedures in place, but climate just should be central to everything we have. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is, this is very interesting because no matter what we're doing at the moment, it doesn't work. I mean, let's face it, it doesn't work. We're really not on the right trajectory to fight the climate crisis. Yeah. Things are happening, yes, of course. You know, when our government in France is talking about we have to prepare for France at plus four degrees. So worst case scenario. Four degrees. I think it is important. I'm not sure how much yeah. of France will be left at plus four degrees, believe me. But it is important to prepare for the worst case scenario. But one thing that really puzzles me is that, you know, the way... Our government structure is that, oh yeah, there is someone in charge of climate. You know, there is someone in charge of biodiversity. There's someone in charge of energy. But actually, as you said, climate should be in every ministry. I mean, should we have a ministry for the environment or a ministry for climate? Yeah. It's always a question, right? It comes back every time we have elections. Because um, it's making it someone else's problem. You know, it's taking the responsibility away from us as individuals. I think we're putting it in a little box yeah. and it kind of doesn't help. I mean, the, the, I think they're trying. They're trying at the moment, the government. It could try a little bit harder for sure. Um, but I think it's a very interesting thought. And I totally agree. It should be in everything. But also, as you said before, climate is, on, is not the only issue. There's biodiversity. There is social justice as well. All of this is also connected. Yeah. And we will not be able to to win, you know, the fight against biodiversity if we don't fight climate and vice versa. We will not be able to to win those uh, over those challenges if we don't have social justice. So, yeah, everything is interconnected. And, you know, should it be third or not? You know, I don't know, but I think it should be in every decision. It just should decision. be in everything we do. Yeah, we That's should make. I totally agree. Climate third was just an idea to maybe break down the way we think about something, but... Just climate should be in everything we think about. Exactly. Every business decision, political decision, personal decision. Um, 
one of the things that your your new roles or the things you're talking about now is making climate more understandable for people. Why is that important? Why is it important that we understand the science behind climate change? Yeah, you, you know, there's always that uh, quote of, of Baba Dium, who was a Senegalese, who is a Senegalese engineer, who comes to my mind when someone asks me this question. And the quote is, if I get it correctly, and it kind of resonates with uh, what Cousteau said, the, the quote is, um, you only protect what you love, you love only what you understand, and you understand only what you are taught. And what I love about the quote is that it really goes back to being taught, to, to education about these topics. And you might tell me, okay, but we've known for decades, you know, we were talking about in yeah. the 70s, we already knew what was happening. The Exxon or the Shell or the BP scientists already knew what was happening. And the scientists were starting to communicate on these issues. But today I can still see day in, day out, the need for education on on the topic of climate, on the topic of tipping points, on the need for climate action. And I'm sorry to say this, but IPCC reports are still extremely inaccessible. I mean, you cannot expect, you know, my parents, for example, my friends who are not scientists, to read the IPCC report. Even I find it difficult yeah. to, to, to read and, and to understand. And so we really need to... To go beyond reports, to make the science more humane in a way, to, to tell them about how we do the science, why we know that there is a climate crisis today, how we predict what could happen or project what could happen in the future. Why do we keep saying that we need to avoid crossing these tipping points? Um, and to me, you know, I also love doing this because I can see it is having an impact. I go and see, you know, villages, towns. I go and see companies, big or small. Um, I go and see universities, other research institutes. And what's fascinating about this is that you can see people immediately, like, they get it. And that's, that's always what I try to do. Yeah. I might not succeed every time. But when they get it, the first question they ask me is, Shit, you know, what can I do yeah. about this? How come, you know, we've gone so far and we haven't acted upon this yet? What can we do? And you can very quickly see that the, the, that educational part is the first step towards action. But if you don't understand that we are that close to tipping points, you know, why, why would you Try to change things. Yeah, if you don't understand it, how you can how can you pass policy and, and to be leading of a country? You can't understand the science. That's it. And obviously, there are very different ways to to educate a government that have a lot of responsibilities and that should rise up to the challenge of climate yeah. change. I won't be speaking to a government the same way I speak to the youth, for example. But the truth is, we need everyone. We truly need everyone to fight the climate crisis, whether it's, you know, the inhabitants of Chamonix, the elected individuals, whether it's the French governments, the companies, we will need everyone. We need a lot of diversity, a lot of experience, a lot of talents to have a future that is desirable. Which I've, I saw you speak at, at a town hall meeting and I saw you speak to many local leaders and local business owners and there was the, oh, it's someone else's problem. Oh, it's America's problem. It's a China problem. How, what do you say to that? Because it's not, it's, not it's not one problem. It's not, sorry, 
what I'm trying to say is um, we need one person to find an entry point into the climate crisis, one person to be curious and and get excited about this problem, one business, one community, one plus one plus one, and then we have uh, a movement. You, I love that. I, I think this is such a great way to describe it because every time I participate in town hall meetings or every time I give a, a, a talk, this is more or less, you know, one of the first questions I get. What about China? But yeah. look at what the US are doing with the Willow Project. What about, I don't know, some other countries? And this will not help. You know, if we keep looking at our neighbors and looking at how bad they are, things are never going to change. Yeah, we need real leadership and real individuals to say, okay, I believe in this problem. What am I going to do about it? I may be a small business owner. What can I do as a small business owner? What can I do as a small community? And if they become a shining light and an example, other people will follow and say, are they doing it? And if the population and the community believe in that, we need to have that ground up, I think, approach of the individuals pushing the, the government and the leaders to make yeah. change. You know, I, I, I think this is truly the way we will manage to fight the climate crisis. The best example I have in mind is probably what Rob Hopkins is doing in the UK. He started by his street <laughs> in his town yeah. and started to talk to his neighbors. And then one street became two, became three, became an entire town. And now it's spreading all over the world. And this is how we should get started is Jean-Louis Etienne, who is this fa really famous uh, explorer in France, who's done everything, been everywhere. He always says, use your circle of influence. Start where you are. Start, I mean, if you're from the younger generation, start with your school. If you are, you know, already working, start with your company. Um, start with your your town, your city. Um, you can really start, you know, having this bottom-up approach and trying to make a difference. But we need leaders. We need to see examples that work. Yeah. And at this town hall meeting, what was fantastic is that the speaker after me was a mayor of a, a town somewhere else uh, in the Southern Alps. And he's making it work. And to have him explaining that it is possible. possible, he is doing it. I could see the other leaders looking at him like, okay, actually, maybe there's a chance yeah. that we can tackle this. But at the moment, we cannot, we, there's no time to waste. We cannot just keep looking at China, keep looking at what was, what's happening in the US. Let's be the leaders of the fight against the climate crisis. And, you know, let's inspire the world to follow suit. Yeah. More leadership, more uh, examples. The other thing I saw at this uh, town hall meeting, when you were talking to some of these leaders and I could see the you're, you're clenching your hand and you're clenching your eyes and you're getting a bit emotional. But then I saw this young child ask you a question about climate change and your personality and your body language changed. Your eyes lit up when this young student became excited about climate. And I saw it in you. Does, does, does that inspire you? Do, you? do you need that when you see it? Does it help? You know, it's it's so important that I'm, I'm volunteering for many projects with the youth, with the younger generations. Um, also because I think I feel, I feel a lot of responsibility 
um, because we are leaving them with a planet that is becoming very difficult to manage. Um, you know, they're, they're born in a planet that is becoming so, so difficult, so intricate. And as a scientist, I really want to be there for them. You know, I, I've kind of stopped saying, oh, it gives me so much hope to see the youth because I don't want to put this on their shoulders. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, but when that generation will be in power, things will be fine, but it will be too late. That's the truth. So, of course, we need to continue working with the youth that have a lot of climate anxiety as well, yeah. because it's almost impossible for them to think about the future at the moment. I mean, how could you? It's it's very difficult. Well, it's not just the climate too. crisis, but yeah, it's everything else. Um, but so what I love about the, the younger generations is that when you educate them, then they go back home and then they speak to their parents. And then they start to change the other generations yeah. as well. And so many um, people in, in big companies have told me, oh, you know, I've had to change everything because my kids wouldn't let me continue using my SUV, wouldn't let me fly all over the world for work. Yeah. And so this is always <laughs> such a great strategy to also educate uh, the older generations. Well, let's continue that thought. Let's talk about action. What can we as individuals do to help this climate crisis? What action can we take? Let's, yeah, my listeners who are absolutely. listening, what can they do? You know, I think the very first thing is to educate yourself on these issues. Um, I mean, podcasts are such a fantastic way to learn more about climate change. There are fantastic podcasts such as How to Save a Planet, for example, or NPR did a whole series about what was happening in the polar regions recently. So just, just read about it. Ask questions, you know, contact the scientists. And then what kind of concrete actions can you implement? The first thing I always say, and that's one that is a little bit tricky, is to calculate your own carbon footprint. Yeah, I did it. Okay. Yeah. Bearing in mind that the carbon footprint was a, a tool that was created by the oil and gas industry to put the responsibility of the climate crisis on individuals. This yeah. is the truth. It's a bit uh, painful for me to say, but it's great to calculate one's carbon footprint. Find one thing in that carbon footprint, at least, that you can really improve. Whether it's the food you eat, the clothes you buy, um, the, the transportation methods yeah. you use every day, the insulation of your apartment, of your home, if you can afford it, of course. But find one thing that you can afford within your means to reduce your own carbon footprint. Then the second thing I say is to vote. And I say this because I'm starting to see that the youth cannot, I mean, doesn't really have any passion for, you know, yeah, governments or for it. politics. Yeah. Um, and I totally understand why it's very tricky, but voting is very important. I mean, you can vote when you're at school. You can vote for your representatives at school, the people in your company who will represent you or the people who will be in charge of environmental issues. You can vote for a government, obviously. And of course, you might criticize where well, this is democracy today. It's very tricky, I know. But at least, you know, we can try to select people, candidates, who in a way, understand that we're in the biggest crisis humanity has ever faced. Yeah. So voting is very, very important. But then as individuals, you can only go so far. You, We really need um, the governments. We really need the private sector to, you know, rise up to the challenge. It, they're not there yet, for sure. How far away are they? Oh, I think you're extremely far. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I shouldn't be so negative. There is a lot of... of 
positive things yeah, are happening. Yeah, can you share any stories of success that you're seeing or hearing I mean, not about? just success, but no, I think, for example, here in France, we've heard our minister talking about the fact that we should prepare the country to an increase in temperature of plus four degrees by the end of the century. I'm not sure yet what will happen to the country at plus four, but I think, again, it is important to prepare for the worst consequences of climate change. Um, and, and, you know, we're starting to see a lot of uh, renewables being implemented more and more, um, but we're also a country with a lot of nuclear power, so this is also another strategy that may be developed even more in the future, whether it's the right decision or not, I'll let the experts, yeah. um, you know, uh, tell us what they think about this. Uh, but things are happening, and things are happening also on the educational part of climate change. Uh, 30,000 of our, um, basically the people who are working around the French government will be educated on climate change, on climate issues. This is an amazing news. The climate fresque, for example, which is an amazing way to learn about the climate crisis, has just reached 1 million participants in the world. This is fantastic news. You know, things are happening all over the place and it's very important to be a part of it. Yeah, I think we need to again, be on the right side of the, the, the equation, the right side of trying. To be fair, we're all a part of the problem, all of us. I mean, you know, I still fly to Svalbard to work there, to teach at the university, to live there. Of course, I'm a part of the problem, but I guess we all want to be a part of the solution. So, yeah, let's do it. There was a thing I was interested about. There's obviously... A scientific people maybe say, oh, maybe we can invest in scientific solutions can solve the climate crisis. But then I think we also need to balance that with behavioral change. So we cannot rely on someone to find a solution and put, I think, is it geoengineering oh, materi gosh. materials in the in the atmosphere? But I think it's fundamental that we have a behavioral change in the way we act to consume fossil fuels. Otherwise, we are going to repeat the same lessons we've, we've been repeating for hundreds of years. This is the key. I mean, we will not manage to change our energy, energy usage if we don't change our behaviours. This is, even the IPCC report says it, that sufficiency, the notion of sufficiency, in France it's called, um, it's called sobriété. It makes me think of sobriety, which is not a great uh, translation, but sufficiency. Use only what you need is very important. Of course, we're fully aware that the 1% you know, of the richest people on earth have a carbon footprint that is, I think, as big as the 50% of the, poor, the poorest half of the planet. Um, it's not great. But we need, we know that people, some people are more responsible about the climate crisis than others. We need to use our own means. You know, we need to fight the climate crisis our own, at our own levels. Yeah. Um, but it's very important to understand that the way we live today doesn't work. If, we, if the whole world were to live like French people, we would need three planets. Okay, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. We don't have an infinite you know, amount of resources on the planet. There's no plan B. There's no other planet. There's, There's planet no a. other planet. Absolutely. And so if if we don't under, understand this, it's going to be very, very difficult. So, of course, sufficiency is, is crucial. But also degrowth is becoming a very big topic at the moment because degrowth understands that we cannot create an infinite, you know, revenue. We cannot have infinite growth in the world because the planet has its own limits. Um, so to me, I'm convinced that sufficiency, degrowth are going to be the key and it comes back to um, behavior change. Yeah. All right.
I'm going to uh, zig a little bit and I want to take a, a look at how you play or how you relax. So <laughs> I know that you're a busy, very busy person. You're traveling around and, and doing all sorts of things. But how do you relax when you're not on expeditions or out collecting data? What, how, do you, how do you switch off? What do you do for relax? Yeah, I think the, the main thing that keeps me sane is uh, to be outside in nature. To, yeah. Usually it's to work out or do some physical activity outside in nature. I really, really need this to push myself physically, I think, to not to forget what's happening, but to really um, it's be remain... Overwhelming. Yeah, it is overwhelming. I mean, being a glaciologist right now is 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 pretty insane. The, the our world is collapsing. This is truly what's happening, and and so I really need times during the day to totally switch off, whether it's to go running, you know, in the forest or to go swimming or to go biking. I have a new road bike and I love it. <laughs> um, so I really need some sort of physical activity and it, and it totally, you know, resets my energy and then I'm, I'm ready for more. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to play a little scientific game with you, a little quiz. <laughs> oh. So I've taken uh, two famous French uh, people, the Prost... Marcel Prost and Bernard Pivot, they have uh, designed a questionnaire to reveal your true self. I'm putting in some mountain questions to, to reveal your true mountain self. Okay. All right. So let's, <laughs> let's take, do it. <laughs> so I'm going to ask the questions and you have to answer them as quickly as you can, whatever the first, oh, really? the first oh, question gosh. is. There's no thinking. All right. You ready? ready. <laughs> what is your idea of perfect happiness? Oh, yeah. For me, it's very simple. Mountains and glaciers. <laughs> <laughs> what is your greatest fear? Uh, to not succeed, of course, uh, 1.52 degrees. Yeah, for sure. What is the trait you most dislike about yourself? Mm, that's very difficult. The dislike about myself? Sometimes being afraid, maybe, of, you know, reaching out or Pushing even harder or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What is the, the trait you dislike about others? When they give up. They give up. Which living person do you most admire? Living person I most admire? Mm -mm -mm. Oh, there's so many. Let me think. You know, now when I think about people in France, for example, Camille Etienne, who is a fantastic activist on climate and environmental issues, who is younger than me, but doing a fantastic job. So I would say Camille Etienne okay. at the moment, yeah. What word or phrase do you overuse? Uh, <laughs> I always say in French, uh, we, uh, on ne lâche rien, we cannot give up. <laughs> okay. um, when or where are you happiest? I yeah, it's very easy. Mountains and yeah. ice. Yeah. Oh, I think to be fair, either in Svalbard or I have this mountain in the Aravi, which is not too far from here. It's a mountain range just above La Clusa, and there there is this mountain where my, my grandmother used to have this chalet at the bottom of the mountain, La Rual. That's the name of the mountain, and this is truly, I think, where I'm happiest. You have the little chamois, the little mountain goats, you know, running around. Yeah. And I know the mountain like the back of my hand. So this is, and nobody goes there. So this is really my place. Yeah. <laughs> That's your happy place. <laughs> what is your greatest achievement? Oh, I don't know. I think to, maybe to have managed to become a glaciologist. Yeah, to, to have followed my passion and, tr and trained to make it work. Yeah. Okay. 
what is the most treasured what is your most treasured possession uh, possession sounds so um Materialistic, no? It sounds so... Yeah, okay, what's the little thing you're, you you own that has a special meaning for you? Okay, so yeah, no, 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 now I know. Um, basically, a friend of mine last year brought me a little jar of water, my friend Esther Horvath, who is this amazing photographer for the German Polar Institute uh, and also Nat Geo. She brought me this little jar of water and I was like, what is this? And she had just been in Antarctica to try to find the Shackleton ship, wow. the Endurance. And basically, it's crazy when I think about this, but they, collect, they collected water samples just above where the boat was found, where the ship was found. And so she was so kind into bringing me this little jar of water. This is really something I absolutely do not want to lose. Especially after you also won the Shackleton medal. No, too. but I'm obsessed with Shackleton. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was so touched when she did that. Okay. Um, what quality do you most like in a man? Um, what would I say? Oh, humidity, I think. Yeah. What quality do you most like in a woman? Oh, same. Yeah, humility. Mm. What value do you most? What do you value most in friends? Um, loyalty. Uh, what is your present state of mind? My present state of mind, um, really high on energy at the moment. And I think it's probably being surrounded by mountains and ice really helps. But um, I'm feeling really, you know, positive. I'm, I want to get out there. I want to make the science even more accessible to everyone. And I can see things are starting to happen. So, you know, we'll tackle this right. yeah, eventually. What is your greatest indulgence? Greatest indulgence? Probably living on Svalbard. Yeah, for sure. What is your personal motto? Um, yeah, I guess never giving up, for sure. Yeah. What turns you on? What's it? Oh, a good expedition, I think. <laughs> good field work. It's always very exciting. A good adventure, yeah. What turns you off? Um... I was about to say admin, but also, yeah, just not being in the field. Yeah, for sure. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, no sounds. Yeah, silence. What sound or noise do you hate? Yeah, city, you know, yeah. civilization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What scares you in the mountains? Oh, my God, avalanches, for sure. Gravity. <laughs> yeah. What is the last piece of equipment you bought? Let me think. Last piece of equipment I bought, I think it was these new solar panels and uh, power banks. I know it's a bit, yeah, but important. Yeah, useful. Yeah. <laughs> what is the best piece of advice someone has given you? Mm, last piece of advice someone has given me? No, I think it was, honestly, we were talking about this this morning. One of my first supervisors in glaciology was Luc Moreau, the, the glaciologist from the valley here. And he just told me to follow my dreams. And yeah, just, you know, we all have these mental barriers and he was the one who just shattered them. So yeah, that's okay. important. What do you always carry in your backpack? I always carry in my backpack. Um, let me think, of course, some water, food. Um, always something. I love bringing back at least images or sounds. So I always have 
of course a phone but I always try to have a really good camera a really good drone sometimes or a really good sound recorder because what I study is pretty alien for most people so I always try to make it you know vivid I always try to make it really real when I give a talk when I meet a classroom or I always try to to help them use their senses to understand why these glaciers why nature is so important what's your favorite word my favorite word um i think it's um um being mesmerized or émerveillement in french yeah okay. last question in the quiz one word to describe the mountains oh, it's a bit nothing special but uh, i would say incredibly powerful yeah that's really what i feel yeah, yeah. power all right power um i'm going to uh turn to the last three questions i like i like to ask all my guests and the first question is how does being in the mountains make you feel very small and and i love that um being like you feel like you're tiny tiny drop in a big ocean and uh i think this is very important to to understand that yeah it's so much stronger than you yeah all right um what do the mountains teach you about life yeah and they've taught me a lot um that life is is so short um that life is ever changing and uh and that life is is fragile yeah it's it is a very precious thing The mountains can take it away very quickly. I think we all know people who have lost their lives in the mountains and I've come close many times. Um but if it, they have taught me a lot about, you know, to stay humble. This environment is so much greater than you. Yeah. All right. And the last question is um can you tell me a story um about being in the mountains and maybe a lesson you learned? Yeah, I'm just thinking about probably the biggest accident I had. Um that was The first time I traveled to Svalbard, I was very lucky when I was 20 years old to do my exchange semester, the Erasmus program in Europe, my exchange semester in Svalbard for the very first time. And I spent six months there learning about the Arctic, learning about glaciers, about snow. And at the end of these six months, I genuinely thought I knew it all, that I totally understood this environment. And this is, you know, when you think you're above this, that you put yourself in danger. And this is typically what happened. Um, basically, it was in December 2008. And a friend of mine and I decided to go hiking a mountain, a very easy mountain during the winter. It's totally dark. It's dark 24 hours a day. And there were storms for days and days and days, lots of snow falling. So oh, we had to wait. We were, couldn't wait anymore. Eventually, the storms stopped and we thought let's go immediately you know after the the wind stopped stopped blowing so we started to hike the mountain and you couldn't see anything it was totally dark but we roughly knew where the path was but eventually we decided to take a shortcut because we knew you know we understood the environment better than than we thought um we took a shortcut and we triggered an avalanche um that buried the two of us yeah. um and genuinely i thought i was going to die and that my friend was going to die as well um we both survived we were extremely lucky he just he's just it's not um, a small thing but he broke his ankle um the doctor thought my pelvis was broken but in the end it wasn't it was just super compacted and um yeah i just remember the nurse you know telling us off and telling us at the hospital that 
we got so extremely lucky. And we should never, ever forget that this nature is so much more powerful than we are. And so, you know, it took me many, many months to be able to walk on snow again at the time when I wanted to become a glaciologist. So imagine it was very, very tough for me. Um, but I'm eternally grateful for this great lesson uh, that I got from nature. Because now, you know, safety is by far my biggest priority when I go on expeditions. Science can come third. I really don't care. I really want to make sure that my team and I stay alive and, and then we can, if we can collect great data, great. Um, but, you know, you, all these learnings, all these small things or big things that happen in the mountains, tell us a lot about yourself, tell us about how you should respect nature and I definitely respect it a lot now. Yeah. I try to. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's, you know, I've, I've taken up enough of your time, but uh, if people want to uh, buy your book, you have a new book out. It's in, available in French only. So hopefully we have an oh, English, tra English translation soon. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Sentinelle du Climat aux éditions uh, HarperCollins, yeah. France. Yeah. Uh, if people want to fi find you and follow you along and, and, and learn and be inspired, they can follow you. Is what the best is? Uh, I think you're on Instagram is the best. Yeah, it's probably the best. Exactly. Heidi uh, Silvestre. Yeah. You are on TikTok though. Yeah, but I'm... I, I'm I'm too old for this. I think I don't understand it. <laughs> um, and finally, if someone wants to um, get involved, are there any um, places they can follow, like Protect Our Winters France? Are there any organizations you can re recommend? For sure. You know, there is an organization that I absolutely love. It's uh, Protect Our Winters. Uh, Protect Our Winters is doing an amazing job Um telling people about the climate crisis and giving them concrete actions that they can implement to fight it. Yeah. Uh, so Protect Our Winters, 100% recommend what they do. They're fantastic. They're all over the world. There's Protect Our Winters France, US, UK, maybe. Yeah, there is Australia too. Australia, yeah. there you go. <laughs> All right, so I asked you to read something at the start of the of the show today. I want you to read this again. So again, read the, the question this journalist is asking this person. I want you to read it. And um, I think it's a nice way to wrap it up. I think you'll agree with the sentiment. Uh-huh. Should I read everything yeah, here? Read everything the red there. and the blue? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So, okay, so it starts. Are you optimistic about how our nations are going about the handling of our resources? I was asked this question very often, and I asked myself this question. When I reason, when I put things together, I am optimistic because I have a great faith in human beings and I believe that someday people are going to revolt and begin to care. It is pretty amazing to see all these young people and children passionate about the world that has been recently revelated that had been hidden beneath the surface for centuries. It is up to them now to take the helm. So that was uh, Jacques wow. Cousteau again. Oh, wow. That is so powerful. Wow. I couldn't agree more, Jacques. <laughs> yeah. So it's up to everyone to take the helm. So thank you very much for your time, Heidi. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more stories from beyond the mountains, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts 
You can find me on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a comment and review. It helps with people to find the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond the Mountains Podcast. So please like and follow the show. And remember, the mountains are more than just rock and ice, but the mountains are made up of the people who live, work, and play in them.